What is up, everyone? Welcome to Education Policy Weekly. I'm your host, John Phillips. Today is August 5th, 2020, and I am so excited to be joined by Dr. Erica Buchanan Rivera, who is the Chief Equity Officer at a district in Indiana. Today, she's joining me to talk about the pandemic and what leadership looks like in times of crisis. In addition to this podcast, I'm kicking off a newsletter called 5x5, where I deliver five things to read, write, hear, see, and do right to your inbox. Each post will be centered around a particular topic. For this week's newsletter, I talked about all things community. You can find the link to subscribe in the description box for this episode or on my Twitter, at ByJohnPhillips. I look forward to you joining the community. The media we consume defines us, so let's choose our content wisely. Before today's interview with Erica, let's talk about what is going on in the world of education policy this week. Yesterday, Chicago Public Schools announced a virtual start to the school year, a shift away from their stated goal of beginning with a hybrid model. While seven of the top eight largest school districts in the country have decided to start the year virtually, New York City Public Schools is the only one of those eight that is yet to make that determination. People are watching New York, an area that, while once ravaged by COVID-19, is now handling cases well, to see whether it is possible to reopen safely in areas that get COVID-19 under control. Similarly, Gannett County Public Schools in Georgia made news when it was reported on Sunday that 260 employees are in quarantine. Last Wednesday, the district opened back up for in-person planning for staff, and the following day, those employees were sent to quarantine due to new cases among that population. Georgia has been among the most cavalier states in terms of pushing for in-person reopening, and not unrelatedly, Gannett County has one of the highest rates of infection in Georgia. Lastly, we are still watching Congress to see just how much aid will be handed down to states and districts and schools in the next federal stimulus package. While education funding is not one of the big debates holding up the bill getting passed, the later that money is passed along to schools from the stimulus, the less helpful it will ultimately prove to be to keep students and staff safe. That's it for the news. Before we dive into my discussion with Erica, please make sure that you are subscribed to the show on whatever podcast platform you use. And if you already subscribe, firstly, thank you. And if you love the show, please make sure that you go and give it a five-star review on iTunes. Every single review helps. And so, without further ado, my conversation with Erica. Erica, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. So, A good starting off point is a piece that you have written and and shared your thoughts with the world about the pandemic and schools and also just, you know, humanity in general. And it's a great piece and we'll have it in the description box for this episode as well as on the post that I put out for this episode. But I'd love for you to just walk through you know, you're thinking behind that piece, what led to you writing it and, you know, how it has kind of shaped your thinking? I've spent a lot of time reflecting on this pandemic and how life has shifted for many of us. I think about the human connections that 
have been lost throughout this time. I think about how I show up also during this time of trauma for many people and leadership. And I really wanted to put those thoughts to paper, you know, to really spend some time reflecting on this journey, you know, that we are all going through in various ways right now. And for me, it it was very clear that we truly need to have more of a focus on equity within leadership. Seeing the decisions that have been made, seeing how we have made shifts away from collectivism historically, it's led to many systemic inequities that we are seeing magnified during this time. And it's very evident to me that we are seeing a lot of tenets of white supremacy culture play out in leadership right now, Mm -hmm. where we're seeing quantity over quality, you know, no acknowledgement of the conflict between the criteria of agendas and the process to meet the criteria. As my friend, Dr. Dina Simmons states beautifully, there's a tension right now between equity and efficacy, you know, producing the desirable results. We also see a right to comfort, you know, emerging within leadership decisions. We're seeing it in protests as people are having their maskless marches, you know, we're seeing paternalism play out and defensiveness, you know, over decisions that are made. And so I really started to think about just the importance of having our leaders grounded in equity, you know, leaders who value collectivism, who see humanity outside of their own and outside of their circles of influence. You know, we have to have leaders who understand the words of Fannie Lou Hammer that nobody is free until everybody is free and intentionally have a focus on the liberation of all people. You know, I don't want to exist you know, in a world where my skin dictates you know, my outcomes. You know, I don't want my child to be in a world or even a school system that replaces her joy with racial trauma. And as Clint Smith says often, and I've seen this in a lot of his tweets lately, you know, it doesn't have to be this way. And if we're truly in this fight for liberation, and if we want to change the conditions or the outcomes or systems of this country, you know, then we're going to have to all, you know, roll up our sleeves and lean into good trouble by holding our leaders accountable. And we also have to be informed of their platforms and and know who we're voting for. You know, as stated in the article, I had mentioned that we have to be aware of who is benefiting from decisions and who is harmed. And for those who are upholding, you know, white supremacy values, for those who are upholding decisions that marginalize certain identity groups, and, and yet they continue to elevate and support those leaders while you know, claiming that they value humanity, that they value anti-race work, that they value collectivism, then they need to be truthful with themselves about their performative actions. How do you see <laughs> the act of holding leadership 
accountable? Like what, what are some of the, the ways? And I think that we've seen that a lot in recent months, we've seen people show acts of bravery, but in, in your mind, what does that look like to hold leaders to account? And with schools specifically, when you think about the school system that we exist in in the United States as one that is prescribed very much by white supremacist values, what what is our path forward to make sure that we are holding those leaders that continue that cycle to account, both generally, but also in schools? It's a great question. I truly believe in community organizing. And I think about the work of Ella Baker and ensuring that we give our community the tools to feel empowered to evoke change within their community. And personally for me, community mobilizing has certainly been a strength for change and working with families, listening to their narratives, elevating that within the systems, helping our community see various pathways into you know, activism you know, at a, a school system level. You know, and, and I think it's really important to think about our history you know, also when it comes to, to schools, because we, we have to remember that Historically, you know, schools have not been, you know, identity safe spaces, you know, to begin with. And I think about, you know, history, you know, such as the, you know, boarding schools that were established for, you know, indigenous people, you know, that was rooted within, you know, assimilationist ideas and also the unintended consequences of Brown versus Board, you know, where black educators were denied opportunities in white spaces and black and brown you know, children entered environments that were subjected to curriculum violence, you know, physical harm, racism, spirit murdering. And when you really get to the heart of you know, history and you recognize that cultural responsive teaching didn't emerge until really around the 1970s, it's hard to believe now that here in 2020, we still have schools that are just starting this journey around CRT work. And so we really have to you know, think about our systems and think about the environments that our black and brown students are, are occupying, especially within structures that uphold and support institutionalized racism. Because for many of our black and brown students during this time of quarantine, they were in their safe spaces, you know, called home. And we have to think about, you know, the implications of, racism on the mental health of students. We have to acknowledge that we're also in a state of emergency. And, and therefore, we have to work collectively with our communities and, and organize. And I think it's important to go back to something that you've always said, John, I don't know if you know this, I've always been a fan. Mm -hmm. you know, anytime you have tweeted this statement, and how are the children? Right. You know, I, I think about that phrase and, and actually heard that first through Dr. Mia Davis, who talks, you know, scholar who talks about restorative justice and, and thinking about, you know, that 
question and the value that the Maasai village places on the well-being of children. You know, we have to understand that the strength of a community is connected to the welfare of how our children are doing. And so just imagine if we were a community, a society that prioritized that welfare of children and that prioritization wasn't based on race, class, you know, or even religion. And so, you know, going back to your question, as I've, I've taken into many different mm-hmm. you know, directions, you know, I think it's so important for us to, first of all, think about how we show up in this work. How can we organize in this work? Who are we in community with, you know, who can hold us accountable? And how can we get together collectively and think of strategic plans that really prioritize the welfare of our children, knowing that educational spaces were historically not safe and knowing that there is a sense of urgency to ensure that we are creating structures that support the identity and the well-being of students. And we're only able to do that by having these conversations in our community, by helping people understand the inequities that are plagued within systems and providing that education and giving people the resources you know, helping people to understand how do they navigate you know, these these political channels in order to elevate their voice, in order to apply pressure, you know, on our leaders to change the policies and the practices that continuously marginalize and plague students in ways that do not allow them to be their authentic selves. And there's so much beauty in a lot of what you named, and I think the there's a, a through line of you know a lot of the time especially teachers but anyone that is is caught between the student level in a school and your your principal or your head of schools or you know at the district level the the, the decision maker is all the way up at the food chain a lot of those people get caught between you know, you don't enter the work wanting to re like to recreate these cycles of white supremacy. Like uh, many people don't step into the work for that. However, you know, and and Dora Santoro talks a lot about this in her work that we talk about burnout because that's a, a corporate capitalist term that we throw around, but for teachers, it's really an act of demoralization because so often we are caught between knowing in our hearts what is right for students and being asked because we want to keep our jobs to Mm -hmm. do things that we know are harming students. And so I think that feeds into this idea of community. And, you know, I'm, I've since moving out to Chicago, I've learned a lot about what has happened to the public schools here. And it has been, it's sad every time that I think, and, and, and I, I know students that have been affected by school closures in their neighborhood. And, you know, when we talk about like food deserts and we talk about these other ramifications of, you know, not like racist policy, bottom line, in cities, you know, we now have education deserts in some of these cities where we've had mm-hmm. all the public schools closed in certain areas where students are traveling an hour to get to school. And so I think that we need to recognize it, that 
this is not the fault of the parents in those communities. This is not the fault of the students who are faced with these struggles. This is not the fault of, you know, making a, a comparison to what we're talking about with unemployment right now. Maybe we shouldn't be blaming people for being thankful that finally unemployment is able to support them in a way that their job never did. But instead, looking at the businesses that are paying criminally low wages to their workers and expecting them to be happy with it. And so that idea of individualism over collectivism, you know, Mm -hmm. it is so entrenched in patriarchy in white supremacy in every system that we have that exists and so i i love that you named all of those things and that you also named that we need to start thinking really critically about you know being mindful of we need to give people these tools we can't just assume that people know how to navigate these really like murky political channels it's not an easy thing sometimes when i see students that i've taught navigating them beautifully like sometimes it makes me sad that i know that that was that that's something that i valued in the classroom but it also breaks my heart that i see them having to do that work so frequently you know students should be should be advocating for their lives in that way so frequently absolutely you know kids and i say this quite often they should not have to do the heavy lifting especially for problems that they didn't create and i love how you named how we really need to focus on the sociopolitical context and really understand, you know, the policies and the practices across, you know, social, economic, and, and political domains, as Loretta Hammond talks about within her work, you know, that creates, you know, an equal opportunity, you know, for people in specific groups based on their identity. And even going back to your point, I mean, we want to blame people and we really need to focus on the systems, you know, that have allowed, that have perpetuated, you know, these inequities. We need to talk about historical redlining and why certain resources are not available to specific communities, you know, throughout our country. You know, those are the conversations that we need to have instead of continuously making certain people you know, or, or even communities, a scapegoat. Right. And, and so much of that, I think is steeped in the, the discussion that is currently and and like weirdly happening about the 1619 project now, despite it coming out almost a year ago, where we see these Republican senators, like being very, very staunch about how, teaching should not be, you know, indoctrination. Well, I, I hate to break it to those senators. <laughs> I really do. Newsflash, right? Right. It's like, I would love to go through every single textbook and every single assignment that you got given during your time in school. And, and a lot of that, the important part is that we name that that is on purpose, that, that people who believe in, in certain things that, that, are entrenched in white supremacy, that are entrenched in patriarchy, that are entrenched in a lot of conservative values, what ends up happening is we we don't we're we're meant to believe that 
those things aren't on purpose that oh that the the school system isn't set up to reinforce ideas about whiteness that aren't meant to reinforce certain ideas around cities around what books that we value about what type of math we value about what type of work we value what type of projects and creativity we value that to to believe that all of that for the time that the education system has existed in the United States hasn't been political and now all of a sudden because people on the left have recognized that we need to name these things if we are ever going to change them. Now, all of a sudden, when we see any shred of liberalism sneak into a curriculum, <laughs> then, oh my God, we could never allow our children to go through that. And so it, it really, it frustrates me. And it, and I, I think that you you name it pretty clearly because it is a question of, all of those systemic things, but it's also, you know, le- we need to blame leaders for it. And, and and you name profits over people, egos over equity, self-interest over safety and white supremacy over the welfare of society. And, you know, you can't, it, it can't be any more clear and to the point than that. Like th- that is what we are faced with. And I agree. And I love, I, you know, thinking about this conversation, I'm, going to lift up a quote from Enid Lee, who states that we should never get used to injustice. It is an unnatural condition. Even if you can't remove the injustice today, continue to call it out by its correct name. And so we should never get to a place where we are afraid of naming those inequities, of calling them out. And what we are seeing from those leaders, if you were talking about is the level of defensiveness that comes through with white supremacy culture. You know, they do not want to hear the truth. And so it's better to, you know, as far as their parts, to either ignore, to gaslight, you know, to omit it from history altogether than to confront it and to reckon with the fact that you know, everything within this country that has been projected to us through you know, educational systems has really been a lie. <laughs> and we have to get to a place where we're able to have these hard conversations where we're able to, you know, lift these hard truths with our children. You know, our students need to hear, you know, these accurate depictions of history that are coming from black indigenous people of color. You know, they need to be able to participate in a a curriculum that is not whitewashed. You know, they need to be able to have these courageous conversations about race, about our sociopolitical climate, and able to have it within a space where their voice is valued, where their authenticity is seen. And we have to be able to you know, have these conversations with educators and be equipped to, you know, navigate, you know, these these hard truths despite what, you know, other community stakeholders, you know, may desire, you know, for for students, which I also know is something that educators have to deal with. I know plenty of teachers who want to have, you know, courageous conversations about humanity within the classroom environment, but they are also afraid of the backlash, you know, from those who share, 
you know, racist ideologies throughout the community who may not want those conversations to happen within educational spaces. And so I know educators are dealing with a lot of complexities you know, around these issues, and it puts many in a hard place, and I understand that. I'm thinking of, in Matt Cave's book, um, Not Light But Fire, which is all about how yeah. to have the, those really challenging race conversations in your classroom and how to make sure that they are useful and generative rather than, you know, he very cleverly points out the way that so often we like to think conversations about race. And I think you can extrapolate it to like any hard conversation that you need to have in the classroom. It's done with the teacher making some uh, beautiful monologue for five minutes. And then all of a sudden, all of the animosity that had been, you know, seeping throughout the class just dissipates from then, then on. And, you know, he, he points out that that is obviously not the way it works. But the other point that he makes which is really smart is he tells the story of one of the, you know, times that he's having one of these conversations in class and he is going through and and his point is you need to be very mindful of how you go about these conversations because it's something that is a craft. And so he is going through and leading the class through some ideas and his principal walks in and he, you know, he understands that he's supported, but it's still a scary moment because this work is, you know, being courageous enough to do right by students. It is so different from a lot of what is expected that there's still a fear no matter how supported you are. And so he goes through it and the the principal ends up, you know, participating in the conversation and leaving and it, it, it all ends up good. But I, I, I love thinking about how how important supportive leadership is. And in this moment in particular, I'm thinking about that a lot because I know that right now, you know, what is it? It's July 24th when we're recording this and... I know that a lot of principals who just got done White Fragility, and it's the only book on race <laughs> that they've read in decades, they are about to lead their staffs through PD on anti-racism and equity work. And that makes me equal parts deeply uncomfortable and enraged. Mm-hmm. Um, because of the damage that can be done in those moments. And so, you know, I, I think that talking about leadership broadly is so important, especially when we think about what a leader needs to be doing when it comes to reopening right now. But I, I would love to hear your thoughts on that moment for leaders to make a choice between doing what they think is right, even though they're not prepared or showing some honesty and a humble nature by admitting like, listen, this is a learning process for me too. Do you think that we can expect most leaders in schools and in districts to be in the place where they are confident enough to say, I don't know. And I'm, I'm learning as we go. Or do you, do you suspect (laughs) that 
my worst fears about those conversations are about to come to come to bear over the next month or so? That's a great question. And I will just answer it based on my hope, thinking about my own leadership, you know, within this work, you know, we have to be transparent and we have to be reflective about, you know, our practices. You know, I tell people often when it comes to equity work and leadership, we all have to engage in a process of learning and unlearning. And we have to be real with ourselves when we don't have all the answers. And so I would hope that, you know, leaders during this time, you know, especially navigating you know, new territory that they have have not experienced before, will be very open and honest that there are some things that they're certainly trying to figure out. I know there are things that I am trying to wrestle with, you know, right now, you know, and figure out with reopening plans. And I'm still dealing with my own level of emotions and anxieties. And so we certainly have to, you know, think about the learning that we're going to have to embrace, you know, whether it's understanding new pedagogical practices, understanding how to attend to the needs of our communities, which have perhaps shifted, you know, since, the time before the pandemic. And I think it's okay to admit when we don't know something. You know, I think a lot of times, you know, leaders want to have all the answers in the room, you know, to create some reassurances for staff. But I I think this is a moment to be very open and honest and say, you know, I am still trying to grapple with how to plan for all the things that are unknown to us at this time. And that's okay. You know, I I appreciate honesty. I think that is a value that we need to see more, you know, among leaders, especially during this time. And I think that vulnerability is actually more assuring to people, you know, that we don't necessarily have it figured out, but collectively, you know, we are going to come together and I'm going to utilize your input and I'm going to make sure that I'm listening to your voice, that I'm honoring it, that I'm valuing it. And we're going to make some decisions together. Now, I've heard from colleagues you know, outside of at least my work environment that they have not been involved in those decisions. And that's where I think it becomes problematic. You know, if we're going to make decisions about you know, educators and their livelihoods and about students and their livelihoods and about families and their livelihoods, then we need to have everyone come to the table, you know, to have leaders make those decisions without the input of people who are impacted is problematic. And so I do think that, you know, transparency also needs to involve the voice of those who you are affecting. Thank you so much to Erica for joining me on the podcast today. I am so grateful to her for coming on and to you for listening. She will be back next week for part two of our conversation. So if you enjoyed this back and forth that we had on this episode, please make sure that you come back next week because we continue to go deep on these subjects. Lastly, if you enjoyed this episode, please make sure that you have subscribed, that you share it wherever you possibly can, and that you leave a five-star review on iTunes. Every review helps. 
Until next time, class dismissed.